You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Hello folks, happy 2020. My name is Mark Sharvari and you are listening to Locally Sourced Science. We hope you had a fantastic holiday season and had a chance to go outside and enjoy the sometimes crisp, sometimes warm December and beginning of January. One of the fun things you can do outside, of course, is looking at birds. And actually, there is a Christmas bird count. And Esther Rakusin interviewed some of the attendees and we report to you about what can be found out there. The new decade is upon us and Liz Mahood is going to have a little brainstorming with you about what you can expect in the scientific fields. Patricia Wardron is going to bring you the science events and we end today's show with an interview with Professor Bruce Lewinstein who will talk to you about the Science Hub. So buckle up and enjoy this science ride for the next half an hour. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. On January 1st, 2020, about 150 volunteers ventured out to count as many local birds as possible in a 15-mile diameter area in Tompkins County. The birders participated in the Christmas Bird Count, a citizen science project sponsored by Audubon and organized locally by the Cayuga Bird Club. The Christmas Bird Count is the nation's longest-running community science project and takes place at hundreds of locations in the U.S. and around the world. But in Ithaca, it takes place on January 1st, every year. This year was the 58th count. The 15-mile diameter area is divided up into nine sectors that are surveyed every year. At the end of the day, birders report to the leaders of their sectors, telling them how many individuals of each species they sighted or heard. To find out more about the local bird count, I met up with Cayuga Bird President Diane Morton. She and fellow volunteer Jill Leichter started counting birds in her assigned area, which included parts of the village of Etna in the town of Dryden. Here is Diane talking about where she is counting and what she has seen so far. Well, I uh, was assigned to Area 2, and the Area 2 leader is Bob McGuire, and he needed help um, on this particular circuit out here near Hanshaw Road. Oh, it's somewhat quiet, but the weather is, is pretty good conditions for us. Um, it's, there's slight flurries right now, but it's not terribly cold. The wind is low. We've seen quite a few songbirds. Um, no hawks so far. Um, but we still have a ways to go. Then Jill states why she is excited about this volunteer opportunity. I can't think of anything better to do on the first day of the new year. <laughs> Out in the cold looking for birds. Uh, yeah. How many times have you done this? This is my first year. I mean, I've looked at birds, you know, gone on bird watches a lot, but this is my first Christmas bird count. I'm totally pro-citizen science. Um, I think... Every day people have a lot to contribute. 
And you have a little book here. <laughs> and uh, what's going on in that book? Uh, I'm just making notes of what we're seeing, but we're also keeping track on eBird. So we have a backup system in writing. Okay. Diane and Jill were planning to count birds until around noon. Then Diane told me to attend the final compilation of bird species that would take place in the evening at the Lab of Ornithology. The tally would be read out after a festive potluck dinner attended by many of the volunteer birders. For the last several years, the tally has been read out by Paul Anderson, a past president of the Cayuga Bird Club. He was also one of the volunteer birders. Here, I asked him what his experience was earlier today. Uh, so I was in the Danby area, uh, but um, so with the, the circle is divided up into nine areas, and my area is called the Danby area. And the area I did was starting at Cecil A. Malone Drive behind Wegmans, going south uh, in that little area enclosed by Route 13, the boundary of the area. And um, I, I, mean, I went all the way south to the boundary, to the junction with Route 13A along the railroad tracks um, in that sort of wilderness area behind there. And then I, I circled back and did the parking lots for the big box stores like the Wegmans and the Coles and, and uh, Walmart and so on. Uh, today I had two notable sightings. So one was a golden crowned kinglet, uh, which is a lovely little bird. I don't see them very often, so it's always a treat to find them. And I had a flyover bald eagle uh, early in the morning. During the announcement of the tally, Anderson reads out the names of each of 186 total bird species that might be found in our region. He states the year for the record high count, the average count for the past 10 years, and then asks each area leader to state their total for that species. Here is this year's count for the blue jay. Blue jay, seen every year. The blue jay high count is 1,366, which was in 2006. The 10-year average is 806. Going? 77. 145. 184. 200. 160. 60. 109. 94. 71. 44. For some of 1144. Uh, so that's up from the average. There are a number of bird species that seem to be considerably lower than the 10-year average. Some are the mallard duck. This year, there were 458 counted, but the 10-year average is 1,341. Only 22 American robins were counted this year, and that was down from 148 for the 10-year average. But there were also some records made this year. 67 turkey vultures were counted as compared to 63 for the record high. And volunteers counted five merlins this year. This small falcon is rarely seen in our area at this time of year. Here is the final tally as read out by Paul Anderson. So the total number of species is 90. Uh, so that's better than last year by four species. And in terms of individuals, the total count is 22,666. On January 2nd, I met up with Mark Chow, a local birder who is the leader for Area 9. He is also my neighbor and had invited me to visit a screech owl that is living in a tree in our neighborhood. Here is his take on this year's Christmas bird count. 
If you listen carefully, you might be able to hear the owl calling. I and a team of other birders uh, covered Lansing, the Lansing area, from the lake shore, the west shore of the lake, the east shore of the lake, all the way to the airport, north to Myers and Route 34B. And what was your favorite sighting yesterday? For me personally, by far, my favorite sighting was a rough-legged hawk at the airport. A rough-legged hawk, rough-legged hawk is a... Um, it's a boreal species, a northern species, that we see in our area only in winter. They come down here to, uh, the, for, the, for them, Ithaca is, is like warmer, more hospitable climate. And um, they're very beautiful. They have a very graceful kind of flight. And um, we have this limited time in which we can see them. Hanging out with people and seeing our community come together, 150-plus counters, 90-people-plus at the dinner, um, exchanging greetings and asking about how their day was, that's pretty remarkable. It, it, it says something about our community. It says something about our area, too, that we have uh, enough wonderful places where people can go out and find birds, where people want to do it and want to do it together, want to share it. That's what I like about the Christmas bird count. To find out more about the local Christmas bird count, visit cayugabirdclub.org. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Do you have a favorite podcatcher? You know, one of those apps that play your podcasts? Well, it's time to subscribe to Locally Sourced Science. So go to that app. Find local resource science, and you will never miss another episode. Hello, science listeners. My name is Liz Mahood. This week, locally source science is ringing in the new decade with some science predictions. To make the following predictions, locally source science considered some of the most groundbreaking technologies of the previous decade, and considered where they might go in the future. CRISPR gene editing and space exploration through NASA and SpaceX made the cut. CRISPR made a big splash in 2018 when a Chinese scientist used the technology to alter the DNA of two infant girls. Although the changes he made rendered a gene implicated in the development of HIV non-functional, many researchers fear his changes may have unintended consequences. CRISPR originates from bacteria, and the effort to utilize this bacterial system in plants and animals took decades of work from labs all around the world. CRISPR has the power to modify genes at very precise locations, with little to no potential for editing off-target genes. This precision is what separates CRISPR from more traditional gene editing technologies, making CRISPR the gene editing tool of choice for many species. Currently, four clinical trials involving CRISPR use in living humans are taking place in the U.S. The ultimate purpose of these trials is to either provide treatments for currently untreatable diseases or completely eliminate the disease within an individual. One of these studies, the first U.S. study using CRISPR to target a genetic disease, is slated to complete in 2022. This study uses CRISPR to alleviate the symptoms of sickle cell disease. The study design uses CRISPR-edited cells to produce an effective copy of hemoglobin, the defective protein in sickle cell disease. The other three clinical trials are targeting myeloma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and a type of child-onset blindness called Leber congenital amaurosis. If these trials prove successful in reducing or eradicating disease, it could cause a paradigm shift within biomedicine. However, it should not be assumed that CRISPR's performance on a set of patients with a certain disease can be applied to any patient with any disease. 
Decades-long clinical trials will still need to be conducted to test CRISPR's ability to cure diseases. Along with biomedicine, CRISPR has the potential to revolutionize agriculture. The effects of CRISPR on crops has already been well studied, since these plants typically have a short lifetime. However, a current large-scale study, funded by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency Insect Allies Program, aims to make the process of producing CRISPR-engineered crops quite rapid. The design of this study uses CRISPR to genetically engineer viruses commonly carried by crop insect pests, such as aphids, leafhoppers, and whiteflies. The genetic modifications that these viruses receive would ultimately be transported to the plants the insects feed on, and alter the genome of these plants. Proponents of this technology argue that it has the potential to rapidly alter the genome of crops, which could make them more resilient to environmental stresses that they face in the field. However, several scientists have opposed this research due to the apparent potential for editing off-target plants and for producing, quote, biological agents for hostile purposes, end quote. Several labs throughout the U.S. have received a total of $25 million to develop this technology. The 2020s is all set to be a decade of space exploration due to SpaceX and NASA's big plans. Some of NASA's most ambitious and interesting expeditions include a crewed visit to the moon's south pole in 2024 and the Mars 2020 mission. The lunar trip is part of the Artemis III space program, which is expected to last roughly 30 days and put two astronauts in the moon for the collection of ice samples. NASA intends for the mission to be the first to place a woman on lunar soil. NASA's Mars 2020 mission is scheduled to launch on July 17th. This mission will place a rover on the planet, which will explore sites on Mars that are likely to have been habitable in the distant past. The rover will additionally search for signs of past microbial life and store soil and rock samples in a returnable cache. Perhaps most importantly, however, this mission and the rover are designed to study the habitability of Mars in preparation for future crewed missions. Both NASA and SpaceX are planning crewed missions to Mars in the near future, with SpaceX positioned to send humans to Mars as soon as 2024. Before humans go, however, SpaceX is sending up cargo vehicles to Mars for setting up infrastructure and the identification of water and potential hazards. I'm Liz Mahood, and that was Locally Sourced Science's science predictions for the upcoming decade. Hello, Locally Sourced Science listeners. This is Patricia Waldron with this week's Calendar of Science Events. All this month, Mann Library on the Cornell campus is hosting Arachnophilia, a passion for spiders. The library is showcasing the strange and exciting world of spiders, including their natural diversity and abilities, and their use in human medicine and agriculture. The exhibit is on display through January 31st, on all days that the library is open. Now is a great time of year to learn about snowflakes. On Wednesday, January 8th, from 3.30 to 5 p.m., the Newfield Public Library will host the Science of Snowflakes as part of its tween STEAM series for middle school students. Participants will learn how these beautiful ice crystals form. Find out more on their website at newfieldpubliclibrary.org. On Saturday, January 11th, the Ithaca Science Center will hold an activity called Zoom into Crystals. Visitors can grow crystals and build models of crystal structures with students from Cornell's Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology. The event begins at 2 p.m. For more information about this and other activities, check out their website at sciencecenter.org. Also on January 11th, Tompkins County Public Library will host Cornell University's Center for Materials Research. 
for the program Families Learning Science Together, Astronomy. The free activity will run from 1 to 2 p.m. in the library's Borg-Warner community room. During this hands-on science program, families will build a sundial that uses the sun to tell time, create constellations, and build a straw rocket. The event is open to the public, but registration is recommended. For more information about this and other activities, you can go to the Tompkins County Public Library Facebook page. Now is the perfect time to visit the Museum of the Earth and learn about the history of our planet and the evolution of life. Admission is free on January 12th and also on February 9th and March 8th as part of their Winter Free Days. You can also see their current special exhibit, Bees, Diversity, Evolution, and Conservation, from now until the end of May. Learn more at the Paleontological Society website at priweb.org. On January 18th at 10 a.m., the Finger Lakes Land Trust will host one of their Talks and Treks series entitled Wildlife Tracking and Signs. Tracker and naturalist Linda Spielman will lead a hike through the Logan Hill Nature Preserve in the town of Cander. She'll be identifying animal tracks and other signs of animal activity, with a focus on interpreting animal behavior. Registration is required. For more information, visit the Finger Lakes Land Trust website at flt.org. And that's it for this week's science events calendars from Locally Sourced Science. In case you are just tuning in, this is Locally Sourced Science. We are bringing science news events and happenings from the Finger Lakes area. If you'd like to learn more or listen to older episodes, go to locallysourcedscience.org or tweet at us at FLX Science Radio. And now back to the show. I'm Esther Rakusen for Locally Sourced Science. Sometimes it is helpful to have a one-stop resource for science information in your community. A group at Cornell University is working on developing just that type of resource. It is called the Tompkins County Science Hub, or SciHub. The development of the hub is being supported by a Cornell Engaged Opportunity Grant. To learn more about SciHub, I spoke to Dr. Bruce Lewinstein, Professor of Communications in the Cornell College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. Lewinstein, project leader Norman Porticella, lecturer in the Department of Communications, and experts at the Cornell Cooperative Extension are doing research on what a local science hub would look like. I started off by asking Lewinstein how the group came up with the idea of researching the concept of a science hub. Here, he talks about the concepts behind Norman Porticella's idea to do research in this area. The whole idea of science hub really it was Norman's idea. And he, what, he re, what he saw was that there are lots of different organizations in Tompkins County, in particular is where he's focused, that have resources for addressing science issues in the community. And if you're a member of the community and you want to, uh, you, you want to deal with some issue in the community, like water quality or food security. One of the challenges is figuring out who to turn to, who's got information that you could draw on. So Norman is a research associate at Cornell in, based in the Department of Communication in the Ag School. And his role is to try to find ways to 
get science information, make it more accessible, make it available to people in the community. And what he saw as he was looking at this was that there was, the information is fragmented, and nobody quite knew where to turn. And although there are some places where you could turn, places like uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension or the public library, they wouldn't necessarily know everything that was all around the community. And so he developed this idea of the science hub that at this point he's identified more than 120 organizations around Tompkins County that have resources. Sometimes it's information, sometimes it's curriculum materials, Sometimes it's hands-on activities that people can turn to and get information to address whatever issues come up in the community. I then asked Bruce who the other participants are and who they are talking to in order to learn more about the community's needs for science information. And who are the stakeholders? Who are the people that Norman has been talking with? So mostly what he's been talking to are the people who run these kinds of organizations. So people at Cornell Cooperative Extension, people at uh, libraries, people in in the various communities in the county who might run uh, local teaching groups or uh, NGOs like the Watershed Network, uh, farmers groups, a whole, a whole range of them. And part of what he's trying to do is just figure out who talks to who. And that's where this becomes a bit of a research project. And that's where someone like me, who's a professor, comes in, where I'm interested in this, both because I'm a resident of the community and I, too, would like access to information, but also because from a research point of view, I want to understand how people get access to information and how they share information and what kinds of networks of people exist, and are there ways we can strengthen those networks? Here, Lewinstein talks about the current landscape of science literacy needs. He talks about the idea of individual and community science literacy. So what we've found, there, there's, there's two ways of thinking about this. One of the things is that typically people talk about science literacy in terms of what do individuals know. And what we have seen is that Ithaca or Tompkins County is like most other parts of the country and that there's a set of people who pay close attention to science and know, know a fair amount. That might be 5, 10, 15 percent of the population. There's another 10, 20 percent who pay attention but maybe don't have full access to information and then there's a majority who really aren't thinking about science at all, uh, except when suddenly something happens that makes them need to think about it. There's an illness in their family, or they are out on a walk and they see a flower that they're curious about, or uh, there's a water quality problem in their home, something like that. And then they want information, but they haven't really been paying attention. That's a pretty common kind of scenario and one that we know exists around the country. The second level, and this is where Science Hub is different than many other ways of thinking about science literacy, 
is what's called community science literacy. And this gets at the idea that groups of people know things that individuals don't. Here, Lewinstein discusses how a group of activists gets information on a particular subject. But you can do that at a broader community level as well. So you can take something like uh, fracking, groups that are, let's say, against fracking. And there might be a group of 10 people, and I should say that this example is based on the work of one of my graduate students, uh, Meghna Talapurgata, who's now a professor at Temple University in Philadelphia. And what Meghna was doing was studying uh, uh, how a group of activists gets information and how they share information. And what she saw was that in a group of 10 people, there might be two people who really paid close attention to the science. We're keeping up on what are scientists saying about fracking, what's the data, where do people get data, how good is the data, and so on. There might be two people who were really good at thinking about the strategy or how does an activist group get its message out and and what kinds of activities should they plan and so on. And there might be two people who are really good at uh, writing press releases or email blasts to go out to people or posters to post all around town about an upcoming meeting. There might be two people who are really good at setting up the chairs at the public meeting. But collectively, that group can do more than any one of the individuals can do. And so collectively, they have some ability to act on a science-based issue that, we don't, that you don't see in individuals. And that's part of what we're trying to see is how something like Science Hub can enhance that kind of collective action, that what we're, what we're calling community science literacy. I then asked Lewinstein what the Science Hub would look like. Here, he describes different ideas that his team is discussing. This is something that's in development right now. The basic part of it is a, computer, is a database that's accessible through computers and through the Internet. But the trouble with databases is that not everybody has access to computers, and not everybody knows how to jump on a computer and sort through a database and so forth. So part of the Science Hub will be having people, some staff members, who are going out into the community, going to community meetings and uh, farmers markets and chili festivals on the commons and things like that, and listening to the community and saying, what kinds of information are you looking for? What do you need? Here's, here's how you can get access to this material that, that we've already collected. But also, we need to hear from you what other information you're looking for so that there's a feedback loop in which then the staff of the Science Hub can go look for more information and find other ways if there's things that we don't have access to that we'd like to have access to, that we can start trying to find ways to connect to that material as well. Acknowledging that there are already a number of science organizations and resources in the Tompkins County area, I asked Lewinstein how his group is interacting with them to get ideas for the Science Hub. There are all those resources in the community, and we certainly don't want to duplicate what they do. What we would like is for someone 
who maybe hasn't heard about PRI and the Museum of the Earth or doesn't know about the Community Science Institute and their laboratory facilities for, for doing water quality testing. For someone to say, I've got a water quality problem, what, where do I go? And so what we would be doing is actually connecting them with, uh, let's say, Community Science Institute. Finally, Lewinstein invites the public to get in touch with him and Norman Porticella about what they would like to see in a science hub. His email address is b.lewinstein, that's L-E-W-E-N-S-T-E-I-N, at cornell.edu. And we will post more information about the Tompkins County Science Hub on our website at locallysourcedscience.org. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks to the fantastic Joe Lewis and Cecce Gianotti for the music and the intro. Liz Mahood, Esther Kusin, and Patricia Wardron contributed to today's show. And my name is Mark Sharvari. Science out! <laughs>